Hello, and welcome to the 17th episode of Adam Alonzi's podcast. Tonight, I am speaking with Dr. Janie Lloyd about life extension and immortality. So, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. What is the Immortality Project about? The Immortality Project is being conducted by the University of California by the Department of Philosophy and um, they are looking at all aspects of immortality and attempting to fuse science and theology which is really exciting and they have many things that they're studies that they're doing things like near-death experiences and so on they also had a component where you could contribute essays which needed to be published first so my contribution was um, to the essays section share what I've, my own observations and studying over the last 20 of the very as, various aspects of the question around physical immortality and its potential for us as individuals and for humanity and the, the various viewpoints that come together when we look at such a, a shift in a foundation stone of our world. Our world has been very much built around the concept that physical death is inevitable. And to overturn that means that uh, there's a lot of social change, a lot of psychological, emotional change, a lot of new ways of being that will be involved. Many, the majority start choosing that. I imagine people would be much more selfless if they knew they would live forever. They would care a great deal more about the planet and about other people. I feel that's a very big factor uh, for my own journey. Um, that connection to the oneness, to the whole, has been a very big part of it. So that uh, uh, the ego-centered behavior that's often um, associated with survival uh, programming, where we feel that we have we are alone and that we have to fight to survive and so on, does not give an environment that's conducive to peace within or in our world. So I see it as um, a step to of fusing that individual identity with the whole and that will in fact uh, create this peace between matter and spirit, matter and energy within our body, body system which will create this potent, this ongoing choice for immortality but also it will have that outward flowing effect of creating a world's peace that is ongoing between people and nations and cultures which I think is very exciting. So people will, will no longer be finite and they won't feel finite any longer, which makes sense. If you're a finite being, you need to identify with finite things. Yes, exactly. And it opens up a dance between the finite and the infinite. So you have an ongoing awareness of infinite expanded intelligence that you are an integral part of. And it's uh, the dance between experiencing the finite in the here and now, uh, but always having this downflow and this ability to connect uh, with, with infinity. And there's no sense of separation. So the emotional healing that comes with that of unconditional love and gratitude and, and praise for what is now um, and, and the beauty of it rather than the survival programming which tends to bring in a lot of uh, pain and angst and suffering and uh, non-appreciation for the world that we have so there's a, a huge um, huge integration process that occurs with it I feel and certainly that's been my experience um, I've become more aware of the whole and and my place in the whole and all the parts of self. And there's a fashionable pessimism that's very prevalent today. Even if it's achieved, it seems as though people would want to cling to that. And I'm not sure why. It's a masochistic impulse, maybe. So the focus on changing the philosophy is as important as developing the technologies because with immortality people will also need some maturity to go along with it. Sophisticated technologies, they also have a greater potential for abuse. Yes, and I think that's a turning point that we reached around the middle of the, uh, of the last century 
where we had the ability to annihilate the whole planet. <laughs> and we really had to stop and think. Um, and certainly I was marching for peace in the early 80s and so on. So it was a really big question for us then. Are we going to blow ourselves up or are we not? And I think we've taken many, many steps backwards from that precipice since then. And, you know, there was the Cold War between Russia and America or Russia and all the Western countries. And um, so, yeah, there's been many, many advancements in our ability to communicate with one another and to find a peaceful space. And I really do think we needed to do it. So it's this sort of maturity that is unfolding for humanity um, as a whole. That is also, you can never actually separate the whole from us as individuals either, in a sense, as we evolve as individuals, we evolve the whole and vice versa. So um, there's, a, there's a definite maturation process, I feel, going on for humanity. So going back to the practical, Yes. What exactly are the first steps that should be taken? Well, everybody's journey will be their own and my steps will be different to your steps and so on. Um, there seems, seems to be some generalisations uh, that, that tend to flow between each person in their pathway. So I'll just focus on, on those. I feel the most important is to just open to the potential. I think that, that is the first step open to the potential that you can uh, live in a healthy, vigorous body ongoingly and um, start to feel into what that means for you and your reality and how it shifts your reality. Because as you say, when you take that finite filter off, you suddenly have so many more choices to how you can live your life and how you see it unfolding for the next hundred years and so on. So that in itself is really interesting creatively for the creative mind. Um, so that's probably the most important step is to start to really take the blinkers off and, and start to say, okay, perhaps this is a potential that for myself now. Um, not something that has to wait on a scientific breakthrough or so on. I do feel we're getting more and more evidence to show scientifically that there is a potential for our psychology and our emotions and our spiritual uh, connection to the oneness to actually impact on our biology. The studies are starting to come through quite frequently now that meditation is good for your biology um, that to be in a space of love and compassion is good for your biology and so on. So it's definitely, we're starting to get the concrete evidence that a lot of what the sages and, and the possible immortals throughout time have actually shared that these things do cause our biology to stay youthful and vigorous and healthy and so on. Um, but as I've said, um, the focus on youth and the look of the body can be uh, ego trap. So we have to be aware of that too, that we don't get caught in this idea or this um, uh, addiction really to a youthful body because that is part of survival programming. And uh, if these immortals exist, um, and I feel they probably do, <laughs> however, they're not, we're not aware of them. They, they're not going to make themselves visible to us until we don't need them to anymore. Because what humanity will do in survival programming is they will give their power away to them and guru-rise them, which will actually put backwards humanity's journey. So yes, it's reported that the, um, the immortals throughout time can actually just appear in whatever look form of their body that they choose once they for a few hundred years they can manipulate their matter energy body so that they can look what we would term you know 100 to 120 years old or they can look 18 or so on so they play with that linear timeline that we have associated different looks with 
Beyond a shadow of a doubt, the mind-body connection has been established, and not just based on anecdotes by extraordinary people like Milton Erickson, even though those are worth reading, if not for anything but inspiration, but gene expression is modulated to a large extent by consciousness. If you think of something stressful, cortisol and a number of other hormones are produced. If you somehow induce your brainwave state to delta, HGH, and a number of beneficial hormones are produced. If you give someone a placebo and tell them it's LSD, or if you give someone some sort of foul-tasting drink and tell them it's alcohol, they're going to act as though they've been given these drugs. Having been, you know, a, a general practitioner as well, for um, close to 20 years, there is so much that is uh, placebo effect or nocebo effect. Um, in fact, you can't really differentiate the art from the science in, in medicine. And I think any doctor that tries to is really trying to fool themselves. <laughs> and it's also very interesting with the scientific model the placebo effect and the spontaneous healings and so on have been almost put in the dustbin. They they don't want to know about them and they're huge, such interesting parts of the whole process and they really need to be examined very closely, especially upon spontaneous healings. I think that's a fascinating area. And, um, yeah, the, the body is a self-healing mechanism. It, it's not like a car. A lot of people fall into this thing of thinking it's like a machine. Our body is not like a machine in any way. It, it mostly, in general practice, it mostly heals itself. You know, what the doctor does often is reassurance. Um, yes, you might give an active, so-called, what is believed to be an active medication, but we don't know whether that really causes the body and the whole psychological, emotional, spiritual being to rebalance itself. Um, I think we've been caught up in the reductionistic model way too much in, um, in the, uh, yes, so that's slowly, slowly shifting and the more s research and science that is done in that area, I think will reveal the miracle that we have as a physical body. And that sort of makes me sad in a way too, that people don't acknowledge their bodies enough. I think it's getting better, but with our psychological emotional makeup that has come along with survival programming often people have a, a deep sense of lack of self-worth and lack of self-love and in that package is also a denigration of their physical body it is so miraculous i wish everybody would do some embryology or you know physiology just even at a purely matter chemistry physiological level of looking at their body it is ex the most extraordinary thing and that has always excited me from the time i went into medical school and i think that gets lost in the normal medical model is uh, people get lost in the disease model and to me having uh, done 20 years as an alternative practitioner as well now it's not the whole story you know it is so disease to me seems to be unfolding a gift of consciousness, of integration, of reconnection, if people can approach it in that way, if they start to be grateful for what they've created and start to look at it and feel the feelings, integrate, see what they needed to alter in their life for more joy, for more ease and so on, uh, then they go through a, a reinvention, a revolution of self. And um, so I see it as part of our journey. Um, if if we create that because I do feel that we now we can move now to a uh, an easier space where we don't have to create such um, imbalances to find our centre. So yes. So we've touched on a number of things that can be traced back to Descartes, to the mind-body separation, to the metaphor of the body as a machine. So mm. this is just hate on Descartes night, but. It seems that he's been wrong, completely wrong. Uh, no, no. <laughs> There's not hate on him. I think, <laughs> I think everything has been perfect. You know, I think, um, I think that perhaps needed to happen back then, that separation, because, um, the spiritual traditions were tending to 
invade virtually the scientific model and um, there needed to be separation between science so it could do its thing without um, the churches uh, causing difficulty and uh, so on. So I think everything is perfect. When, when, we, when we fully get to the other side of this paradigm shift, I think we will just see it as all so perfect how each piece of the jigsaw puzzle fitted into the next piece and so on. And that separation and that total, we, we sort of went into reductionism down to the the tiniest, uh, you know, beyond the smallest matter particle. And that needed to happen for us to then reawaken to the holistic and the integration. So it's, it's just, it's all perfect <laughs> when you really get that perspective. Sound a lot like Leibniz. It is the best of all possible worlds, and holism is the truth. And I suppose that it is the best of all possible worlds if you think that time is not linear, because in the end it's moving towards something perfect, or it has been perfect all the time because there's no past, present, or future. Yes, it's like uh, uh, Robert Kuhn, an interesting man that I've done some study with that has been talking about physical immortality since 1967. And, um, yeah, he talks about him being imperfectly perfect and perfectly imperfect. So it's this ongoing journey of perfection unfolding and revealing itself. Um, and it's just a really comfortable space to inhabit. And it allows you to be in the now much more to really be here and revel, enjoy, and say, yeah, I'm going to really be excited for the next 100 or 200 years to unfold, but I'm really excited now as well. And to really enjoy that and to also appreciate the past. I was never much of a history person earlier on. I was always, you know, more about the future and so on, but I've really started to enjoy the historic as well in the last 10 years or so, that how, how the beauty of all those past eras as well. So amazing. So yes, it's just a wonderful tapestry that we are continually creating and allowing ourselves to experience. So in integrating the mind and body, there are Eastern practices, of course, and then there are also Western practices like Gestalt, Reikian therapy, the Alexander Technique, etc., etc. Are there any in particular you are a fan of? A lot of mine came through the, the New Age movement, in a sense. Uh, I, I studied Orosoma um, colour therapy and found it to be an amazing system of wisdom, ancient wisdom, which actually drew on many, many ancient spiritual traditions and ancient cultures and so on. Um, so I've always had this not so much focus on one area but an integration aspect of it all together um, and found it amazingly revealing for people and for myself to unlock aspects of my consciousness and so on. I'm not so, familiar uh, I, with colour therapy. What does that entail? Well, the Orosoma system in particular is um, it's made up of over a 100 dual-coloured bottles and they have essential oils in the top fraction and water with herbs in the bottom fraction so you get the oil floating on water effect, which is quite amazing. So it's usually two colours. And they're often aligned with the conscious and the unconscious as well. There can be differentiations there. But the person actually then intuitively picks um, four bottles in the consultation, which can actually reveal a lot about their deeper psychology and uh, you can access um, some understanding spiritually and so on. So they're, they're quite beautiful and they're, vi you know, they're in the area of vibrational medicine. Um, which, you know, there's no proof of this, of course, at this stage, but I feel it actually um, operates in the, on the energy body and the energetic system. Um, and the, the chakras, you know, the, the ancient Indians and so on have known about the chakra system, the energy system, and how the colours were like a rainbow body. So each colour relates to a different part of the physical body and the organ systems involved there. And I found it very accurate and... Very interesting. However, as I say, it doesn't have the, the scientific 
validation at this point. But I think that's the other thing that happens on this journey. You have to move beyond needing that conventional um, backup so much in a sense because you are paving new ground and uh, you need to, if, it, if it's your intuitive step forward, then you need to honour your own intuition that there is wisdom that is still unfolding for our establishment and for the mass consciousness and we need to honour our part in it and our choices as well. Mm. Right. I mean, if you wait for all of the gaps to be filled in, very little would be done, particularly in the area of medicine. I've written a number of articles about pharmaceuticals and pharmacology, and the mechanisms are not always fully understood, often big, dark, gaping holes. Yet we still use them because they seem to have some efficacy. Yes, uh, and that's where I say that uh, the medical people don't like to own it all that often, but they are actually... Um, it's as much an art as it is a science. And I think it's really interesting too when we talk about the uh, mind-body connection that psychology is such a new form of science as well. At the University of Western Australia here when it was um, founded in 1913, the Department of Psychology only just scraped in as being credible as a department. So um, it's very new. You know, that's only 100 years. So people are still getting used to this idea that if they look at their psyche and their emotions and their spiritual connections, that that might impact their health in some way. And I, and I think the other thing that's happening too is that the alternative complementary medicines and therapies are slowly gaining more credibility with the establishment and people are choosing to look beyond what is available in the normal established paradigm. And I think that's good too because the nocebo effect can be a very negative aspect of the normal medical model. Um, I often say to people, if you choose the medical establishment model, you're fine until you get to the point where they think that there's no cure and then you're in trouble, <laughs> you know, because they're going to do the almost the Aboriginal tradition here is that if somebody had really misbehaved in the tribe, they were the bone was pointed at them and they were, they were left to die and uh, people would die if the bone was pointed at them. So it's a bit like that. It can be a bit like bone pointing. And just because, you know, 95% of people don't survive with a certain condition after five years doesn't mean you can't be one of the 5% that does. And this is another area of, of a problem in the normal medical model is that that 5% that actually do survive needs to be asked a lot of questions. <laughs> How did you survive? What did you do that was different? Instead of just they're ignored. And that, that sort of, that's where that bias has to shift. That's mm. exactly, it's chalked up to being a fluke, but then the question is, what caused the fluke? <laughs> exactly. Maybe there's some common pattern in the fluke. Um, Dr. Joe Dispenza, whose work I really like, he has studied recently some spontaneous healings and come to some interesting commonalities that people would uh, find interesting to check out. Um, and certainly one of them is the the ability to connect with something bigger than themselves. That was one of his things. That was a commonality. Um, the thought, the, the openness to reinvention, to letting go of their old ego identity um, was another part of the commonality. Um, so, yes, I think if these, if these spontaneous healings and so on are studied more closely, then we will find that there are commonalities. I think maybe Grace... The area of grace, uh, as opposed to karma. That's sure. an interesting one. We can go into yeah. some strange metaphysics there. Yes, yes. Um, uh, many of the religions talk about karma, so it's the law of cause and effect. Um, it's related to the polarity psychology that we've been living with in survival programming, and what 
seems to be the picture that comes through and certainly from my own experience of living this for the last 23 years is that we are moving into an energy of grace with um, the physical immortality philosophy and that means that you move beyond the polarized consciousness and there's three virtues that will help uh, in particular with that journey beyond the karmic um, and they are gratitude um, for all of life and not just the things that but also for the what seem to be difficult experiences if we can create an energy of gratitude in our heart for the easy things and then bring in what is causing some ego resistance and difficulty and be grateful for that as well then we over time or even instantly will get epiphanies of what is uh, in our reality what we what's shifting what's changing what aspect of ourself needed integrating by that experience where we've been putting making some aspect wrong and it aligns very much this sort of moving beyond the polarity thing aligns very much with Carl Jung's some of Carl Jung's understandings with um, embracing the shadow aspects in the subconscious because as children uh, we uh, aligned certain parts of our being with uh, being okay depending on our parental environment our culture and so on and other aspects uh, as being not okay and we put them in our subconscious and they are our shadow so we've sort of made them wrong in the polarity consciousness and but they aren't wrong in any way they're just just a different expression of uh, self and reality culture and so on so with this psychic journey that occurs uh, out of this polarity the gratitude will help you to integrate uh, the shadow with the conscious mind and there's a psychic integration that occurs beyond conflict um, that you'll also studied as well and he aligned it too with the um, the alchemy the alchemist journey um, that you know some people think of alchemy as turning you know lead into gold and all of that sort of thing but the real alchemist journey was an inner journey of transformation um, and they had their stages in that process which aligned very closely with a lot of the stages that Jung talked of um, out of moving beyond the conflict um, and moving into the unity consciousness um, so gratitude is a powerful tool for actually assisting in moving into that space that's that unity consciousness um, and also unconditional love um, of all aspects of self and you know and everybody else um, because once we have it for ourselves, it's easy to have it for other people to allow them the space to just be who they choose to express um, and then praise praise is a little harder for most people I certainly found it the most difficult virtue to align with initially it's um, praising the divine in all things so so it's it's like knowing that there is a gift in everything even though the ego filter our psychological emotional filter is not seeing it at this point it's trusting that there is beauty hidden in this um, and the praising of the divine in all is a very powerful fiery energy to burn away judgments um, and uh, it's probably the fastest way but often the most difficult for people to find. Although some people can work with praise um, more easily than others. For me, it was gratitude, love, and then praise. So they've certainly been very useful techniques for me. And Robert Kuhn suggests that we always need a, tri a tripod of three virtues to work with. And people like St. Francis, he had a lot of ability with gratitude and love, but he didn't have the third, so he didn't immortalize. But it all gets down to work with it. You know, you can sit here, you can sit here and listen to me suggesting these things, but until you actually work with them and see the effectiveness of the tool, it's moving into the knowing. It's not an intellectual journey. It's a deep heart journey and knowing that comes through um, with actually doing it. And that's what's yes. unfortunate about a lot of these things, is you can write about them, you can even write about them beautifully, but they have to be experienced firsthand. 
And yes. going back to what we were talking about much earlier, is that there is enormous power in perspective, merely shifting your vantage point, even when it comes to something fairly objective like a chess game. Sometimes you just have to look at the board, literally or figuratively, in a slightly different way. Yes. I had a lovely example of that happen about 10 years ago when I ordered a book called Why Die um, by Herb Bowie. And this book, I haven't got it on my desk at the moment, but it's got the words Why Die in, in letters about that big in red. And uh, when, I, when the shop assistant rang up to let me know that it was available, she said, that book you ordered, Why We Die, is here now. So her filter of perception of physical death is inevitable had to read the title on that book as Why We Die, even though the letters were that big in red, Why Die. So just that putting that we in changed the whole context of the meaning of that title. So it is very interesting and people need to be aware. That's why lifting that lid on, you know, just a crack in that concept of physical death is inevitable will create a whole new perception for people because that puts a, a major filter on our awareness uh, of what is possible and what might already be out there. Yes. Mm. Well, once something is Perception so, is so important. Once something is ingrained, it's hard to give it up. And that was something I was thinking about a couple of days ago. One of the most difficult things for human beings to do is to let go. And you'd think that would be one of the easiest because all it does involves is, hey, okay, I let go. So you have to. And I think that's related. You have to destroy something before you can create it. The Hindu trinity that Western scholars sort of imposed on their cosmology. Shiva is the destroyer, but it isn't viewed as something negative. It's necessary in order for creation to take place. Yes, yes. I like to call it discreation <laughs> rather than destruction. I think there's less environmental energy around the word. Um, yeah, and I think that once again, it's, it's like we've been living in this physical death is inevitable paradigm and at the same time most people have had a huge fear and denial around it as well so they have to there's all sorts of emotional judgments and fears associated with letting go because of that so you really actually become friendly with death in a sense you actually start to embrace life as a flow so the understanding of life it lifts into life being life and death occurring all the time. So it's not this polarised thing of life and death. It's like life is up here and it is composed of life and death all the time, flowing. Does that make sense? Sort of like life itself is actually much bigger than this life and death thing. And I, I, we see that in the physical body too, which is really interesting because we, we are always um, creating new cells, breaking down cells, so our molecular system is in flow all the time. So there's, there's various um, ideas about how long it takes for every molecule in the body to actually flow in and flow out, but most people say around two to three years, uh, all of your physical body is not the physical matter body that it was three years before. So our molecules are continually exchanging, our atoms and molecules. So we are actually living on this flow without really recognising it. And my feeling is if we completely move out of that old programming and move into the new paradigm of physical death is, uh, we're beyond it virtually, it's unnecessary or obsolete, um, or at least optional, <laughs> then um, we are just in that flowing body and we can just replace it in whatever look or form of health that we choose instead of being locked into that flow being like a deterioration. Um, so that's my feeling is that 
once we, as humanity, because I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether we can be separate to the petri dish. <laughs> if you were, like uh, Bruce Lipton has done a lot of work with cells in petri dishes, you know, cell biologists, and of course the petri dish is very important to the health of the cell. Well, his work, yeah. I, it's been a while since I read his books, but that's another fellow who's looked deeply into epigenetics and just how precise or how precise the mind can target the expression of genes. It's not just simple automatic processes. It's, ah, there is a burn here on my hand or a scar or whatever, and what happened to it? Yeah, that's right. It's not that immediate at this stage, is it? Yeah. So um, that's why I think that we are affected by the petri dish of the world that we're um, immersed in. So that's my only reservation about saying that there are immortals, definitely. I wonder whether we can immortalise without the environment, the human environment in which we are immersed being fully open to that as well. So I'm not, that's where my reservation comes. Um, so I like also to shift the consciousness as much as I like to share this awareness um, for everybody that we can move beyond this because it's not only assisting everybody else, I feel, with their health journey, but it's assisting me because I want to remain in this world. And maybe that's the other thing. If there has been immortals in the past, they would have perhaps needed to take themselves right out of the mass consciousness reality, you know, go and live in the Himalayas or something in an isolated spot so that they weren't actually influenced by the um, the consciousness of, of what we see around us. So I think that's interesting. And something we've started here in Perth in the last six months with that in mind is a a social group, a social and information group um, once a month, which we're calling healthy longevity and physical immortality philosophy because we're starting to see that we need the practical side of things as well because people need a social group. And as people, you know, as numbers get greater in our world, they tend to get locked into a social environment of deterioration, decay and disease. And the, the conversation becomes centred around that. So we need to create social networks that are actually reinforcing and supporting a different perception, a different discussion, a different, um, yeah, a different tribal understanding because it's too lonely otherwise <laughs> to be in our world with a totally different perception. You've got nobody to talk to. <laughs> so we need to address that aspect of it as well, that we are tribal people and we like our human connections and we like to be able to talk about them. So I think that's an important aspect of our journey in because we can sometimes get very esoteric and philosophical, but we need to look at the practical aspects of, of how does this unfold in our world, which is at least probably 95% or more immersed still in a very concrete reality around physical death being inevitable. So you need to be able to plug in to some social network that is actually uh, helping you to look at other options and be in that other perception. Mm. So that's where the Petri dish, I think, is important. I think we, we, we're altering. And I think even discussions like we're having, if people tune into these, it helps them to say that, oh, yeah, there's lots of people thinking this way. Uh, it's, uh, it's another connection for humanity, yeah, for Presumably, their humanity. in order to become an immortal or acquire any sort of cities, someone would need to isolate themselves, and that's what most of the old yogic texts recommend in the first place, because interacting with people does bring you down. That's one of the few common threads I've noticed in mystical texts, whether it's Aurobindo or Prabhupada or any number of the others, they say association is extremely important. 
all of them differ greatly on their metaphysics and some of their other beliefs, but there is power in who you talk to, who you were around on a daily basis. Yes, I agree with that. And certainly early on in somebody's psychic journey, a lot of inner time, a lot of separation from, well, not separation, but a lot of really going inwards and perhaps moving away from the normal culture is a good thing. But then at some point, if you want to be part of our world, um, we need to move back in as well. So that's where those social networks become important as well. And I think a lot of those uh, mystics have talked about that in a different time for humanity. I think it's exciting that we're at the time we're at now. I think there's so many people shifting that we are able to speak more in the world. And I think that's exciting. There's been a, have you seen The Age of Adeline yet? The movie that's on in the cinemas at the moment about this ageless woman? I have not. Yeah. It's quite an interesting one. It's worth checking out. Um, she became ageless in the 1930s, born in 1908 or something like that. And it's very interesting. I, I like the way they've done it. Um, it was a strange sort of scientific phenomenon, which if my memory serves me correctly, they said will become available for humanity in 2035. So I thought that's really interesting. Hollywood are definitely starting to say this is a potential and this is out in the cinemas, so it's not just a, you know, B-grade movie. So she is quite an ordinary immortal, which I like as well, because often the immortals in Hollywood aren't depicted as being ordinary. They're either superhuman or they're, <laughs> they're not nice. <laughs> so she's an ordinary immortal. And I think it follows, it's sort of set in modern time but it flashes back to her journey over the last 108 years or so. And um, it flashes back to the reinventions she would have had to do of her identity because she didn't want to be a guinea pig. And I think that's very real. I think that if you had have become ageless in 1930, I think you would have done exactly what she did. Um, I thought it was quite authentic. Um, she first, when she realised what was happening, and had her first ID check that they queried, um, she then went off to another part of um, the States and started to research all the medical history. That was in about the 1950s. Was there anybody else that was ageless and so on and she couldn't find anything and she worked in that area? And then she actually had to go through a total identity change because it was the time when um, they were cracking down on communism and so on. So she got arrested. And um, she managed to get away. And so after that time, she actually got new ID and so on. So uh, quite an interesting movie. And, uh, of course, now at this time, she's able to trust more and to open up. And um, the, the difference that's happened in our, in our psychological evolution as humanity since the 1960s has been very big as far as um, tolerating people being different um, or, you know, different cultural beliefs and so on. It's just opened up so much. And I, I feel if I had been her in, and been ageless in the 1930s, I think my journey may have been very similar. I think that uh, you would have had to do that to stay under the radar to, if you didn't want to be a guinea pig. <laughs> so, yes, I think uh, it's an interesting movie. And the ending, I'm not going to tell everybody the ending, for me, it had just a, a little bit of disappointment in it, but with the saving grace that they had said that by 2035, this choice will be available for everybody. And I think with that memory in mind of what they said, I think it wasn't too bad uh, an exploration of the thing. So I think, uh, and I think it's exciting that, um, Hollywood is starting to explore these things in a in a way that isn't quite so polarised as it may have been in the past. Yeah. Mm. yeah, they like to treat the future as a dystopia, and maybe that will shift slowly but surely. And yes, immortality is almost always given to villains because it's the most selfish thing you could possibly want, apparently. 
Yeah, and that's what they don't understand. There's actually a lot of selflessness in it. Um, it's a balance between uh, being able to honour self and honour all others as well. So it's a nice balance, actually a nice balance. Like a bodhisattva that could liberate itself but chooses to come back and help people out of compassion. Yes, and in fact, it actually it is a liberator. It's a philosophy of great liberation um, because you do get to that point um, of understanding it's a game and we can play it and be in it in whatever way that we choose. Um, and eventually I do feel, um, I do really like the ordinary immortal concept at this point. I, I, I think that we're extraordinary in our ordinariness. And I think, and I think this is part of the acknowledging of the feminine yin energy as well, that we don't have to be this extra special thing that has been so linked up with survival that we had to somehow be better than everybody else to survive. And, um, but in our ordinariness, we are, it's amazing. Life is amazing once you have that perception. Um, and in our ordinariness are extraordinary already. <laughs> and what people would have um, deemed miraculous like 300 years ago, we can do now, like talking to each other across the world and seeing each other and so on. So humanity has created this ability to do that. So a lot of the so-called, you know, miraculous things that are ongoing, we're already doing. Um, and over time, who knows what we'll be able to do, maybe some of those superhuman things like teleporting, maybe that'll come through a machine, maybe it'll come through our own ability to manipulate matter energy and so on. I think that they will unfold in that superhuman way. However, you know, we're already extraordinary and to honour that as well, not get too caught up in the future zone because it could take us out of the now. I can agree with you on an intellectual level about that. On an emotional one, not so much. I, I'm <laughs> not sure if people are as they are extraordinary, but oh well, there's always an opportunity for a shift, right? Well, they are. They just don't realize some of them. When they're in that, um, that narrow perception, they're not, um, they're not awake to their extraordinariness, um, but they are. Once they scratch deeper they are and uh, you know for me I can just see deep I can see so much about a person um, like for example their physical body to me that's an extraordinary thing um, that's a complex synergy uh, that is happening and that to me is extraordinary and uh, as yet a lot of it's unexplained so yeah to me they are extraordinary life is extraordinary a flower is extraordinary the whole evolutionary process is extraordinary. Life is extraordinary, so are cells. Ordinary people, not sure. Not sure. That's just because they're not awake yet, that's all. Yeah, they're just not awake yet. And once they are, they'll but realize. When will they wake mm -hmm. up? When is everyone going to wake up to the game? Um, well, that's an interesting question. Robert Kuhn um, feels that we are in the millennium that this awakening is occurring and it's been slowly unfolding since about the early 1900s and he says it will, everybody will be awake by about the end of this 2000 uh, year era. Um, yeah, so it will depend on how rapidly the awareness can be integrated for people. I think it could be fairly rapid. When I'm on the internet, I think it's going to happen in the next 50 to 60 years. Um, but when I'm off the internet, <laughs> I think it could be several hundred years because it, uh, mm, when you get out into the the older paradigm, the more established paradigm, how that's operating in the physical world, it feels like it's going to take a while for that to shift. But yeah, and you do get out of the sense of it needing to happen so rapidly. 
when you're relaxing more into the now, you're much more in the flow of eternity and you just allow allow people to play the game. Like if you were playing a game of football and somebody came on to introduce you to an advanced game of football, you might say to them, well, let me finish this game of football first um, before telling me about the advanced game of football. So I think that's where our choice comes in at some more expanded level. I feel that there's a choice involved here and uh, individually and collectively. And uh, maybe some people are just uh, happy playing their game at the moment at some even more expanded level. But that's all conjecture. <laughs> I suppose you only know what you know. And I suppose that even if people have access to written material, which virtually everyone in the Western world does because of libraries and the internet, you can lead them to it, but you can't make them think. You can't make them feel it on an emotional level. No, that's right. And that's where the um, emotional courage comes in too, because it's quite a journey still at this time um, to to embark upon and to live and to speak it, but it's getting easier. I certainly found it very courageous in the first few years that I awakened to this potential. Um, yes, it seemed it's so much easier now being able to connect with so many people, having like-minded thoughts and perceptions and so on. Hmm. Yeah. But there is also some peril in that. Of keeping a homogenous social network, you don't have new ideas flowing in all of the time, which is something to be wary of. On the other hand, the transhumanist community on Facebook certainly is anything but homogenous. That's so very, and Robert Kuhn, one of the very first things he would suggest was don't form groups <laughs> uh, to just make sure you're still integrating into the world uh, is an, uh, life force uh, is evolving through everybody no matter what the length of the lifespan they choose to so be very very aware that you don't cut yourself off however at the same time it, there is a certain um, comfort comes with uh, when you do get to chat with others who see it in a similar way Yes. So I think it's, once again, it's a balance, isn't it? But very, very important to to not cut yourself off. Yeah. Well, the Absolutely. remarkable thing is there people can lack faith in a proven procedure, even in a medical procedure, even in something in which the success rate is very high. So I think that reinforcing faith is frequently a good thing. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's where the power of the tribal um, consciousness and mass consciousness and yeah, family and so on are so important, really important. Yeah. So yeah, once again, it's a dance. It's it's not this polarized thing. Um, it's a dance. Yes. And that. Have we covered all the points that I think need to be covered? Let's have a quick thought. Well. We know that there's huge amounts of discovery happening happening in the medical science. You know, just even in the Newtonian uh, world of the solid matter body, there's things like you know organs now being grown from stem cells, and huge advances are occurring there to um, keep the body going. If people are uh, you know having problems that require it, like a new kidney or so on, so we are having. That to me is more the machine-like model, you know. Uh, if you have one fail, you put a spare part in. <laughs> so that may be required for a while while we're going through this transition and then I think eventually that will become an outdated sort of way of, uh, re of regaining health. But in this interim phase, that's going to be important. Yeah, and I haven't been here 300 years yet. <laughs> so I'm not absolutely sure that the way that I'm approaching it is going to be 100% successful either. So I think it's important to have those um, medical things happening as well on a purely solid matter reality. 
So yeah, they're all important. Um, however, I, I do feel there's a lot people can do um, with looking at the deeper aspects of consciousness as well and how that relates to the body. Well, perhaps. Exercise, I mean, you can't get away from just the basics that exercise is important. You know, children call exercise play. So adults lose that. You know, they make it hard or, oh, we've got to exercise, you know. So, like, bring the joy back into what you do. Play and dance and be like the child. And, in fact, a lot of the sages have said be like the child. And they... They are just channels, forced to flow, and their emotions, one minute they'll be crying, next minute they'll be laughing. We get too caught up in one emotion being right and one being wrong. So always spend time with children and to re-energise your own inner child because there's a lot of wisdom in the child. And I think on my journey, my two children have been very important as far as learning how they just are in the world. They don't think about it. They just live, and they are, until the age of about six or seven. They're just in the moment, and they're living, and they're joyful, and they're creative, and they're excited. We need to really learn, not learn, learn from the children and to honour that side of ourselves. And the little booklet that I've written is called The Fun Way of Physical Immortality Philosophy to really energising people again they're in a child. That gets lost a little bit in this so-called maturation process of adulthood. And the most mature thing you can be is be as a child, in a childlike way, um, but to have the maturity, of course, of the adult there. So it's like having that childlike aspect but not being childish. Childish is a wounded child, but the childlike expression playful expression um yeah and move your body enjoy your body enjoy your senses don't go into um the body is a negative thing so all of those things are important mm. certainly it's not a negative thing but it is not all there is and reportedly no. there is much greater bliss to be found in the inner world I think we need to be careful about that statement, uh, greater, because um, I think that's been an entrapment uh, of some of the spiritual traditions. They start to go into bliss and then start to feel that the physical body is um, not as worthy and they just want to exit. It becomes an escape, <laughs> escape clause, I think. So, and often that can be because of heart wounding from their childhood. So we need to be cautious of that. I feel it's a, an integration of all those aspects of self and allowing the child to express naturally. And, yeah, in time we'll be able to do some fancy things with our body, I, I feel. Um, you know, over the next few hundred years we'll be able to do some that the spiritual sages talk about, dematerialising me rematerialize and so on um, so I think there can be a certain glamour associated with the spiritual traditions that needs to be uh, you need to be aware of and to center yourself in the heart and uh, know that this the physical body is as sacred and as worthy of anything as we have felt that the spirit is so I think there can be some entrapment that occurs there if we're not careful Right, certainly. There are examples of, like St. Jerome being out in the desert, whipping himself, letting the sun beat down on him, not eating anything. But I haven't even found that in, say, Shankara, very extreme Vedantist, non-dualist. The body is important because it's the vessel of the brain and the spirit. And yes. it would be hard to find passages in the Upanishads, the Vedas, or any of the gurus writing saying to treat it poorly. One of the first no, things they say is to treat it well. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, yes, I think that's perhaps where some of the, the wounding of the psychology can, can skew it a little. Um, and I, I feel also that a lot of people talk of moving out of the, out of the Piscean age into the Aquarian. 
And I do see that as part of this trans transition that's occurring too, that we're moving out of that sacrificial pain and suffering zone, martyry zone, into a more playful Aquarian expression. And you see that on YouTube all the time. You know, it's just so fun. People are actually choosing fun and joy in a, in a childlike way a lot more. It's not fun and joy at the expense of other people. It's, uh, it's a lovely, playful aspect of our adulthood that is starting to come through now that wasn't allowed. And I think it's only about a hundred or so years ago, 110, 20 years ago, that it was, all, you know, in a photograph, it was frowned upon to smile. It, you know, martyry was very big. It was the thing to be, was to be a martyr and to be serious and all of this sort of thing. So we're coming out of that sort of conditioning uh, into we can be playful, we can allow that. And uh, playfully serious and seriously playful is another lovely, um, you know, paradox that's unfolding that we, and it's one that I really love. <laughs> I love that aspect and I write about it of really being in the child and allowing that to express and it's very creative and I think that's exciting. Hmm. So I see that shift happening as well.